Welcome to First Thought, a podcast by Galway International Arts Festival. I'm your host, Katrina Crow, curator of the First Thought Talk series. In this episode, we'll hear from Donna Vuma, Bulalani Mafako, and Evgeny Storn in conversation about their experiences in Ireland's direct provision system. First established in 2000 to house asylum seekers entering the Irish state in search of international protection, direct provision was intended as an interim accommodation system for a six-month period. That was not how it worked out. The average length of stay in direct provision was 23 months at the end of 2017, with some staying for as long as five years in conditions which have been criticised by human rights organisations. This First Thought talk was recorded at Galway International Arts Festival in July 2019. Anne Mulhall, activist in the Movement for Asylum Seekers in Ireland, moderates the discussion. So today we're very lucky to have Donna Bulalani and Evgeny speaking to us as activists and as people who are currently in the direct provision system about what that system is and also to explain in a variety of ways why that system must be abolished. So just to introduce our speakers briefly, uh, Donna Vuma is an activist with, the, with Massey, the Movement of Asylum Seekers in Ireland, an autonomous grassroots organisation of asylum seekers for asylum seekers. She's also the founder of Every Child is Your Child, which is specifically uh, um, there to support parents who are in direct provision, and Donald will be speaking about that a bit later. Bulalani Mfako is also a key member of Massey uh, and does has been doing enormous work uh, both in direct provision centres and in terms of doing work with, with the Irish public uh, around direct provision and why it must end. Uh, Evgeny Storn is a sociologist and LGBTQ activist. He's also the founder of Queer Diaspora Ireland, which is specifically there to advocate uh, for uh, LGBTQ migrants and asylum seekers in Ireland. So I welcome you all here today. <laughs> So if we could just start, I suppose, for people in the audience who may not know or need their minds focused, Bulalani, if you could just maybe say a little bit about what direct provision is. In, in the year 1999, I wasn't here then, many of you may have been here, um, the Republic of Ireland decided um, for the first time that they would have they, they thought they had a housing crisis, like they currently do, uh, think that they have a housing crisis. And so they thought, well, the best way to meet the needs of asylum seekers would be to create a system that was akin to what was going on in the UK, where asylum seekers would not be allowed to work. So before that, asylum seekers were allowed to work and they, they processed asylum claims very quickly. They, people didn't wait for years and years for decisions. So before 1999, if you came to Ireland, sought asylum, you would get a decision within three, six months, um, and you would be allowed to work and be integrated into the community. There was no such thing as being staying in a, a hotel for five or 10 years. Um, from April, they started a pilot in 1999 that said it would be temporary just to meet the, the growing number of people who were coming to Ireland to seek asylum. They would have a pilot for about six months on a temporary basis. By April 2000, they decided that anybody who comes to seek asylum from April 2000 would be placed in a direct provision center. The direct provision centers would be B&Bs, hotels, some disused, some who are currently being used as hotels, 
uh, old convents, and some were school premises that were closed down. And they would tender, they would put that through public tender, and then private companies would um, submit would submit bids, and they would house uh, asylum seekers while the state processes their asylum claims. That process became very uh, lengthy as time grew because it was designed to one care large scale welfare fraud. They assumed that people who were coming to Ireland were coming here to get your welfare benefits. There is a politician who was running for elections recently, Peter Casey, who also thinks the same. And people say he's racist. So if Peter Casey is racist, your government is just as racist for doing that because they are doing exactly what Peter Casey was saying. So they created direct provision one to make sure that asylum seekers avoid coming to Ireland. They would treat them as badly as they treated Hungarian refugees who lived in Oklashin in the 1950s, begged to be sent back to their country. They would give you a weekly allowance because you're not allowed to work. The state would provide you with a bed, three meals a day. You'd get a weekly allowance of 1910 euro. Uh, it's gone up to, it was 2160 for a time for many years, and then it was uh, increased in March this year to 3880. That was a recommendation made in 2014 by the Mark Mahan report that they should increase it to 3880. But I don't think the judge himself would live on 3880 per week. Um, they think that you, if you're given three beds, uh, you, if, you, if you're given a bed and three meals a day, you should be satisfied with life. If you have a dog, I'm sure you know that your dog needs more than that. So it would be the same with people. Um, that's, in a nutshell, direct provision. Um, just three meals a day and a bed. If you are a parent, they do provide nappies in proper direct provision centers. Um, they'll provide your know, nappies. Some would provide toiletries, uh, basic like um, a toothpaste and a soap. Some would provide detergent, but many don't provide that. So you have to buy them with the 3880. And a lot of asylum seekers don't drink tap water. In Noklesheen, when you got on the bus, people go from Tesco with lots of water. They've used the 3880 to buy that water. And then there is time, of course, that you wait, you spend in the system. You don't, um, the decision-making process is very lengthy. You get three statuses when you seek protection in Ireland. You get refugee status. If you are refused refugee status, which is given to a person who has a well-founded fear of persecution on the basis of race, gender, or political opinion or religion, or membership of a particular social group. If you don't meet that criteria, then they look at subsidiary protection, which is a status given to a person who, ha who may face serious harm if returned to their country. Serious harm is defined in three ways. If you would be forced to join uh, military service, you would be protected, you would be given subsidiary protection if you didn't meet refugee status cr uh, criteria. You would also be given refugees uh, subsidiary protection if you did not if you would face the death penalty for any reason other than uh, the ones that meet the criteria for refugee status. You would also be given subsidiary protection if you would face torture, inhumane and degrading treatment in your country if you didn't meet refugee status. So it allows you to live in Ireland as well for about five years and then you can apply for citizenship. Then the other one is leave to remain or permission to remain. It's given at the discretion of the minister. They can give it to you if they say you are a person of good character they can give it to you if you uh, on humanitarian grounds. Many people get it on humanitarian grounds. So it's at the discretion of the bureaucrats. Those are three statuses that you get. Now, people wait for a very long time for all the three, for any one of the three. So Ireland rejects, previously they rejected nine in every 10 asylum applications lodged in the state. 
Last year, they rejected seven in every 10. So they improved it a bit slightly, but seven in every 10 is still very high. And then the most who are rejected would get protection on the appeal stage, and that's when the waiting times happens in direct provision. That's a very long introduction to a system. It's just there's <laughs> so many. For a moment. Yeah. It's just so many different aspects to how direct provision operates. Like it's not just about the bricks and mortar yeah. of the building that you're kept in. It's about the whole a whole system that's designed to segregate and ghettoize and uh, force people to live in a state of impoverishment. You know. Yeah. And this comes to another aspect of the direct provision system that a lot, there's been a lot of attention on recently, and that is the right to work. And we could also talk about the right to education in line with that. So uh, people who are seeking asylum in Ireland were, until about a year ago, excluded entirely from access to the labour market. And some small change, there was cha a big, well, there's a big fanfare about the changes introduced last year to this. But um, so, that, so there's some limited right to work allowed to some people in the asylum system. But maybe, Evgeny, you could maybe speak a little bit about how the, the kind of um, exclusion from the labour force and exclusion also from education, how does that actually, how is that part of the direct provision regime? Well, I, I prepared a small uh, uh, t text that it's not written by me, but from my understanding, the direct provision is a, a deeply colonial uh, phenomena, and I just uh, found a definition of, of colonialism, which I think uh, suits very well to the purpose. Uh, it's written by a uh, Portuguese sociologist, Boaventura de Souza Santos, who, who, who wrote uh, this, colonialism is a system of naturalizing differences in such a way that the hierarchies that justify domination, oppression, and so on, are considered the product of inferiority of certain peoples and not the cause of the so-called inferiority. Which I think is uh, pro precisely what is happening, because people who were uh, back at their home countries invested uh, all the resources of the family, like in my case in the education, uh, basically, I can not even dream about a decent work because the, the status is so weak and the right to work is so limited and so unknown. It's just a paper with my photo that says that I'm allowed to work for six months, so no one really will invest in such an individual. And the same situation is with, with the education. We, uh, from one side, yes, there is some initiatives that we can't uh, say that there is nothing is done. Like there is uh, almost all the Irish universities have this initiative of the University of Sanctuaries. But basically what we have to address is not the idea that certain individuals might get the access to the education, but that everyone has to have the access to the education. And everyone has a right, the essential right to get an eat beneficial for everyone, for the whole society. So the, 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 the idea of exclude people from the labor market or from the education is uh, basically uh, building the, the certain hierarchies within the society where certain group of individuals are basically uh, prescribed to be uh, always in an inferior position. So. Uh, 
when we are campaigning for education for people in need of international protection, I would rather advocate for the free education for everyone living in this country or uh, for the uh, uh, unlimited right to work for everyone who is living here. Because from one side, we are importing people uh, to work as nurses from certain countries and we have 6,000 individuals who are basically forced to remain in these hotels uh, without any access to the, to the labor market. So it's just unexplicably a stupid situation that has to be addressed because it's, it's in the best interest of everyone, not just of people who claimed for their international uh, rights. Yeah. Um, there's cer certain kinds of things as well that make it really inaccessible, even though people might think, oh, the right to work is there for some people, but people have to wait nine months before, with no decision on their case before they yeah. can enter the labour market. And there are other limitations, such as uh, people who are seeking asylum generally aren't able to hold driving licences. A lot of yeah. people have problems opening bank accounts. There's all of these other kinds of limitations that mean that people are effectively excluded and in really kind of I, petty ways. Yeah. I, I just I said just that the, when they introduce the right to work, it basically, like, we are enjoying our right to work. But a lot of people who applied for protection years ago, and they are still in the system, they, uh, you cannot have the right to work if you got the first instant recommendation, as they, as they call it. So basically, all the people who were refused at the first stage, they have no right to work. And basically, within the same system, you have people who have right to work and people who have not right to work, which creates an additional inequality within the system of already oppressed, uh, institutionalized living. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and the same with education. All the focus on the sanctuary universities means that it's only very, very few people who actually get any kind of access to third-level education effectively. So this kind of basically yeah. direct provision is an apartheid system, and then within the direct provision system there are all of these divisions between people that are imposed by the conditions that are kept in by the state. So one of the things, uh, Katrina mentioned the human rights violations that have been reported on multiple times by multiple international and national bodies. Uh, one of the key things that many uh, of these international bodies have found, um, including the Ombudsman for Children here, uh, is that the violation of the rights of the child, uh, the children's rights are violated by direct provision and yet children are forced to grow up in that system. And parents are forced to have to try and raise their children in that system. And Don, I wonder if you could maybe talk a little bit about that. Yeah, um, sure. Um, I think it's very important for us uh, to remember, especially if we're talking about the, the issue of human rights, that seeking asylum itself is a human right. And every individual, including all of us here, has the right to seek protection from any um, country that is signatory to the Geneva Convention. Um, Currently, there's over 2,000 children out of the 6,000 that Evgeny mentioned living in direct provision. And these children are being forced to live in a state of poverty that is being imposed by the government by not allowing parents living in the system the right to work. Um, it's impossible trying to raise a child or children on an allowance of 38 euro 80 per week, which has recently been increased uh, from 19 euro 10 for a very long time. So you can imagine a situation where someone has been living in the direct provision system for over 
seven years or, you know, over nine years, living on that 19-year-old 10, trying to raise a family. Um, if we, th there's a few human, there's a few rights of the child that stand out for me when we talk about direct provision, like uh, the right to a loving and nurturing environment. Direct provision is not a loving and nurturing environment. Children are forced to share spaces with strangers. Um, they are forced to share spaces with parents. There's a center that we visited yesterday in Sligo. Um, in, in some of those rooms, families are forced to share a room um, with three or four children, grown children, including teenagers. There is no way that could be um, a productive environment for children. There's no play areas uh, for, for children to be able to run around um, and explore different activities. Another right is that children should have access to proper health care and nutrition. There's no cooking facilities in most of these centres. Um, because of that working group report, the McMahon Working Group report, one of the recommendations that came out of that was that their centres should be uh, self-catering or should have cooking facilities. Now, keep in mind that this is a reform or an improvement to direct provision. We shall say right now that we campaign against we are not for the reform of direct provision, rather the end of direct provision. But this is a recommendation that came out of that. And some of the centres have started to be um, turned into self-catering facilities. But the biggest problem for a long time has been that families have not been able to cook for themselves. So as a parent, an example would be myself living in the system for five years. For those five years, my children have never tasted a meal that I have prepared for them myself. Um, the meal times in the direct provision centres are set to three times a day. So if you miss a meal time or if your children miss a meal time out of those hours, then you have a problem. There are strict rules in the centres whereby you're not allowed to take out fruit from the canteen to the room. So it means that you go back to that 38 euro that you're getting a week to try and supplement um, the food that you give your children or to buy snacks or to prepare lunches for them to take to school. Another right for the child is quality education. Children that are living in direct provision are denied access, for example, to third-level education. If a child has been living in, in Ireland in direct provision for less than three years and have completed their secondary school, they cannot progress to third-level education. That is a serious violation, in my opinion. If a child was to come in at the age of 17 years old, turning 18, of which then they would be moved into a direct provision centre, it means that even if they wanted to enroll into um, further education, they are not able to do that, especially now if they do not have the right to work, which was recently introduced. People were able before to access, say, your level three, level four basic courses, but people are not allowed to do that anymore if you do not have the right to work. And as Gina has already explained, a lot of majority of the people in the system are excluded, including these um, people who have just recently become adults. Um, Another right is that children should have equal opportunities. You know, all children should be treated the same. Children in direct provision are not treated the same as other children. A, classic, a simple example would be um, when they go to school. Unfortunately, these children have to be dropped off by a bus that identifies that they are coming from a direct provision centre that already comes with its own challenges, the stereotypes associated with that. Um, asylum seekers and children living in DP are not allowed, sorry, they are not entitled to social welfare 
and that includes the child benefit. So that means that most of the time, their needs for school are not met. So they are going into school without proper uniform, uh, maybe with not enough stationery or enough school requirements. That already puts them um, at a disadvantage as compared to their peers. There's so many examples that I can give um, you know, about that and so much more I can talk on. Um, but I, I guess I'll leave that for questions for later. Yeah. Maybe. I mean, I'm kind of torn about where to go next. Like either, because all of you have spoken very publicly about the kind of petty bureaucracies that are involved in just living in the centres, like and how, how life operates in the centres, also in the broader legal process, mm. but how that actually... Um, how the dynamics of institutionalisation work on a day-to-day -day basis. Uh, I, I, would any of you maybe want to pick up on that and talk about it a little? And it varies from centre to centre. So in some centres you might be allowed to have guests, but we've had hotels that don't allow asylum seekers to have visitors. Mm -hmm. If you went to prison, if you know somebody who is in prison, you're allowed to go and visit them. But you have a direct provision centre that does not allow to have, uh, that doesn't allow asylum seekers to have visitors in uh, Bray, this, the Esplanade Hotel, um, in another DP centre in... Well, the uh, best interests of the children. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's true, that's true. That's what it's not say. even for children. In some cases, they have a curfew for a direct provision centre with grown men, single men. Ten pe a man is told that, a, like me as a grown-up, that I have to be in bed by 10pm. <laughs> I'm not a child, like, I have a life. You might be taking away some of my rights, my, my ability to socialize and engage with the community that I live in. But you want to go out sometimes, you have friends, you want to visit friends. What happens if you come back after 10 p.m. and they lock the gate? You're supposed to sleep outside. Mm -hmm. They have a curfew, it's infantilizing. Mm -hmm. So you see that in an everyday basis, like we have to go in and queue for lunch, you have to go in and queue for breakfast, you have to go in and queue for... Every single day of your life, you have to constantly think about those petty bureaucratic rules that you are introducing. It's the first thing that they give you when you show up in a direct provision centre is the rule book. Yeah. They'll give you the rules. These are the rules that will govern your stay here. Your meals, you'll get them at this, at this time. It's always around eight or so. If you miss it, you're stuffed. You're going to go hungry. You, you don't get to decide what you have for breakfast. Today, I was lucky enough to choose because I didn't sleep in a direct provision center last night. But you don't get to choose what you have for breakfast. You don't get to choose what you have for, for lunch. You get to choose for what you have for dinner. It's not even about being able to choose what you have for breakfast. It's about being able to provide for yourself because we come with lives like we've lived in our countries. We worked, we've studied, we've provided all those things for ourselves before. But now you have this rigid system with very petty rules, like they asked us to produce an ID card. Any Irish person have a national ID card here? It doesn't exist in Ireland, but they're asking us for an ID card. We don't have an ID card, but they want that blue card. It's an immigration card that tells the, the police or an immigration officer that I'm allowed to stay in the state while they process my asylum claim. But they want that to be able to identify me. It's like, no, I'm not giving to you. So sometimes they ask you to go in and sign that you are in the center. If you give me that register, I'll tear it up and throw it in the manager's face. <laughs> I, I, I live there. If I live there, then I should be able to live. Yeah. Live life. 
And that takes it away when you have those very small, petty... It's frustrating to have to go through that every day. Every time I need an ironing board or an iron, I have to go in and give my name and, uh, and identify myself to get very small things, everyday things that you, 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 you need to use to live life. You have to go into the manager and speak to... The, you have to go to speak to the receptionist. You have to go to speak to a member of staff. If I need milk, if I need sugar, after the canteen times, I need to go and speak to a contractor appointed by your government, paid for with your tax money, to give me sugar. <laughs> milk, mm. coffee. The, Every day of my life. The other thing is a kind of extension of the center outside the ter territory of the center. Uh, and I mean that like a lot of centers are located in a very uh, remote zones, so people are very visible there, mm -hmm. and they immediately identified as asylum seekers, mm -hmm. and they can meet a certain attitude from the locals, which is not always welcoming. And also, you know, it kind of doesn't allow them to forget who they are. They are forced to be asylum seekers 24-7. Those who are living in cities or more or less big towns, they, they can sometimes go like in Galway to the shop street and you can forget that you are, you are just a tourist, you know? You kind of can rebuild this identity. But when you are in the remote center, it is very, uh, like it's a, it's a very oppressive kind of pressure to, to the person who is who is living there. So you leave the center, but you are still very visible, easily identifiable. And it, it, it really destroys a lot of people because they are, not, they, they are staying in the centers, they are not leaving the centers, they are not integrating, they are not meeting locals because they feel per se excluded. And if some people are located in this and you don't really know what, is, what does it mean, it's like, ah, they are living there for some reason, no? There, there is... And, and it's kind of, together, it makes this situation even harder. Like mm. It's not just the center, but it's also, I think it is very important where the center is. Mm. And unfortunately, due to the housing crisis, uh, most of the recent centers are opened in an extremely remote zones. Yeah. Extremely. Sometimes it's just a building in, in between of several fields, of farms, and the closest village would be 50 minutes work, walk. Yeah. So, which is... It's very unfortunate that when you, when you do come to seek asylum, um, you give up your freedom for your safety. That's the price that you have to pay. From the moment you get in, you're giving up your identity documents. Your dignity is taken away from you. You don't have a choice from the reception center as to where you're going to live. You just wake up randomly one morning and there's a number that identifies you on the wall telling you that you're going to go and live um, somewhere in the middle of nowhere. Uh, I'm sorry, no offense to Listunvana, but for example, like you, you, you wake up and you're told that you're being moved to Listunvana, you have no idea um, where that is or anyone you know, that has gone there. When I was moved, for example, I was told I'm going to Limerick and every time I say to people, I'm going to Limerick, everyone was saying, oh my gosh, Oh, yes, that's, you know, the step city. Oh, we, yeah, so, like, the question was, what, what did you do to piss off the manager? But, you know, it's, it's, it's things like that where you, you don't have a choice, you don't get to have a say um, in, in what happens in your life and what happens with your children's life. In the centers itself, 
The life of the children is so monotonous. They have to do the same thing every single day at the same time, whether it's playing a game or whether it's, it's hanging out with their friends. It's always at the same places. They know that I have to wake up, go to school, come back, eat, watch TV, play football or swing on that same little swing, go back to the room, take a shower, get into bed, wake up and do it again all over tomorrow because, only because their parents are not allowed to work. If I was allowed to work, I'd be able to say, take money and make sure that my kids are enrolled in certain activities, which would still be difficult in Noklesheen because of the isolation and the segregation from the community. I would have to be thinking of, um, can I afford transport to get them to the activities and back? Um, but that's something that should, that should be, that you should be able to do. That's a right that, should be, that you should have, the right to work, so you can provide adequately for your family. And I think that, you know, that just, um, that's just the, um, I don't know, what holds the system together and what continues um, to oppress people living in direct provision so much, because you're really not able to provide for yourself, mm -hmm. let alone for your family. You're just at, at the mercy of the state. It's just this total system of exclusion so that there are, you're left no way, actually. People are left no way to live their lives, just to live their lives. And the issues around stigmatization, being kept in de facto detention. We say we don't have detention in this country, but I think actually yeah. we do uh, for asylum seekers. And um, a kind of criminalized, sort of this quasi-criminalized status, actually, that is made, people are made to live in that kind of situation by the state. So this sort of, I think, does lead us to what's happening now as well. Okay, so there was recently this Oireachtas Committee uh, sort of looking into the system of direct provision and alternatives to direct provision, and Donna and Bulalani, you both spoke very eloquently to that committee as part of Massey. Um, and part of some of the uh, people on the who were heard uh, during the hearings were talking about how much things have improved in direct provision in the five years since the McMahon report, and all of the reforms that have happened over the last five years in direct provision. Now, I'm very. If, what do you guys think about the last? What's happened since that then, and what's happening now to people who are seeking asylum here? I think the, the, the improvements, when they looked at the improvements, in, when they established the working group, the McMahon working group in 2014, it was after Masi was formed, actually. They, they, uh, some of the founders of Masi, you, you were there, they decided to lock out staff in Kinsale Road Accommodation Centre. It's a direct provision centre in Cork. For 10 days, they locked out staff out of that direct provision centre. They shut it down. They didn't allow anybody to go in except for asylum seekers. They ran it themselves. They had a committee to cook. They had a committee to clean. They had a committee to do everything that the staff were doing. They had, that, weeks before that lockout, they had prepared a list of demands, things that they wanted to see change in the system. And they gave that to, whenever the staff came in, the manager, they had their own bodies. They put their own physical bodies on the line in the door, in the entrance, the direct provision center. So they had a couch. They put it up there. They blocked the entrance and then if you have to go in, you have to go through them. They did not allow them to go in until they actually committed to sitting down and addressing some of the issues that they did. And those issues were never really fully addressed. They addressed some of the very petty stuff like sharing rooms, like if you, they used to share rooms like they do in Balsaskin with two other people. If you are single, you will share a room with two other strangers and their beds are 
so close to each other, like just as if we're sleeping on the same bed. I went in one night, my first night, I had one roommate. The next morning I woke up, there was another guy breathing next to me. <laughs> That's how creepy it is. You go to bed and you wake up, there's a stranger next to you. Yeah. Like, I, I asked my roommates that I went to sleep with, like, who is that? Where did he yeah, come from? <laughs> <laughs> Even if the stranger is handsome, I don't care, no. <laughs> that was creepy. <laughs> I wouldn't say so. <laughs> Depends on the situation. <laughs> he didn't have a six-pack, Evgeny. He didn't have a six-pack. <laughs> so uh, we woke up there and just like, what is, where did he come from? It was like, he showed up at Dublin airport in the middle of the night, the office was closed, and so immediately was taken to the, the center, and our bed was the only one available. So they, they don't think about people living in there, they think about bed space. That's what is happening currently, they're always trying to find beds, and they will take any available rat hole, like we've seen rat holes, mm. that you wouldn't live in. They will take any available rat hole that says we can accommodate asylum seekers, some of them are great places. The Maldron Hotel, it's a great hotel. If you're going on a holiday, you'll book the Maldron Hotel and you'll stay there. But you're not going to be stuck in the Maldron Hotel for three months with your family in that hotel room. Because it's not built for people to live in there. It's built for you to go in, check in, check out in a few days. Now, if you live there, your family is coming to seek asylum, you've claimed your asylum, you haven't been processed into the system, you don't have your PPS card, you don't have your medical card, you are a mother, we went to the Meldron Hotel in Limerick and we found a mother with 20 days, a baby that was 20 days old. She ran out of nappies. She didn't have a PPS card, so she wasn't getting the 3880 that you're supposed to get every week. She ran out of uh, baby formula. The hotel doesn't provide nappies and baby formula. I called her. She wasn't killed there doing her stuff. But she had to go in there. I don't know what mothers and what, I don't have children, like, mm. so I needed somebody who knows what they need. She, I, I went in there and I told her, I, I checked the, the place out, how many people are there? There are a few families, they have infants, they need this stuff. I got her involved and she got her and other people involved, but we had to go around collecting nappies and things because they aren't provided in the center. It's great that people want to help and provide those things, Parents were stripped of the ability to provide baby formula and nappy for their own children. And that's what's happening in emergency accommodation. When a person lands and they don't have a bed in Dublin, you'll be shipped off wherever there's an available bed in a hotel. They're paying hotel rates for them, so they cost more than direct provision centers. I don't think anybody's gonna make their building available to be used as a direct provision center now, when they know that they can earn more if it's used as an emergency accommodation center. If Meldron Hotel, if you booked, if you check online how much Meldron Hotel is, 90 to 110 euro per day, include three meals per day for each person. So if you stay there for three months, six months, of course it's costly. It costs over 3,000 euro per month. And people aren't being provided with their very petty, very small things that we don't think about. We had to get people to donate water, like water. Because the hotel staff told them to go and drink in the toilet. Men, people are get shocked when they, see, they hear that asylum seekers don't drink tap water. Like, ah, what do you think? We had lives where we come from. Like, some people don't drink tap water. In some countries, tap water is, has a bad reputation, so you immediately don't want to touch tap water. You don't care that it's in Europe. If you come from a country where you were told you're not going to touch tap water, you just arrived in Dublin. You're not going to go in and 
and open a tap and drink, you want water, you want to see, is there a store to go and buy water? People don't know those very things. When you come, you don't even know which bus to take when you have to leave somewhere. So people are stuck in hotels. Mm -hmm. They couldn't move from that hotel. They couldn't go anywhere. They didn't know where to go, where to go. It's bad for, for parents because the children can't go around running and playing in the hotel. They only played, they started playing when we were there in the lobby mm. because we were there. But they weren't allowed to, the manager and the staff would shout at them like, it's a hotel, it's operating as a hotel. If you get guests coming in and their children playing around, they would wonder what happened. So we tried to be a bit rowdy when we asking for donations and put them right in the foyer. Mm. All the nappies were in the foyer, in the hotel foyer, in the lobby. Yeah. And the nappies and baby formula and noodles and everything that the yeah. people were asking. We had people pulling up with vans and dropping them in the hotel. And I think Anne insisted, she, the manager was denying that she's running a direct provision center. Anne said, it is a direct provision center now, you have a thumb sick as you. So you have a lot of they those issues. They didn't like that. They, no. no. You have a lot of those issues. And then you have vulnerabilities within direct provision itself. Children don't feel safe in direct provision. There's a child, an incident recently, it was reported on the news, mm. where a child raped another child mm. in a direct provision center. We've had women who don't feel safe in a direct provision centers, don't feel safe having to share intimate living spaces like bathrooms, communal bathrooms. We, our centers is mixed. Yeah. We have children running in our block. It's a block of men. Some of the men walk around from their rooms to the communal bathroom naked. Yeah. They walk around in their underwear sometimes. Some will put on a towel, some don't, don't bother. They just walk up and they were drunk the previous night and they're walking and they've their children running in the corridor. I was forced in Nokreshin to share a bedroom with a homophobic man. Yeah. Told the government that they couldn't be bothered to do anything about it. Yeah. So you have all these different vulnerabilities within the system itself. And it's, when you look back into that Magma Hand report, very small, petty things that you could tick a box and say, well, we've given them cooking facilities. It just didn't address the very core problems with direct poverty. Didn't address the waiting times. We've had people having to wait eight years for a decision. There was one woman, she was tortured. She was used as a sex slave in her country. They told her she was lying. She had to go through Spirasi, which is an organization that supports survivors of torture in the country. She had to literally physically strip her body down and show them the physical scars. Then they prepared a medical legal report in order for them to give her refugee status. Mm. They always assume that asylum seekers are lying about what they, they, they went through. Now imagine you've survived sexual slavery. In your country, you were tortured. You've managed to escape. You didn't think you would come out alive. And then you sit, the first place that you've sought protection in tells you that you've made, you've made it up, you're lying. Yeah. It's dehumanizing. That's what is always missing from that Mahan report. So all the people who com comment on it and they're like, oh, it's great things like, um, I live in a direct provision center, I don't mm. see much improvement. Exactly, you know, and it's also, I don't know if you mentioned it there, but that woman had to wait for eight years. Yeah to get refugee status. So what it, you know, this is clearly a deeply dysfunctional system that is, like you're saying, it's mm. predicated on like the main aim is to disprove people, to make people, to prove that people are lying rather than to actually honor people's right to claim asylum. Yeah. Now, just in terms of we're talking about specific kinds of situations with children, with women, Evgeny, you've written and 
You had an interview actually recently in The New Yorker as well about, your, about the system. You've written a lot about the position of LGBTQ people in, in the asylum system. I wonder if you could maybe say a little bit about that for people. LGBTQ and also uh, victims of domestic violence. And in general, the, let's say, the gender-based violence. Because the problem there is that it's so subtle, it's so invisible, and sometimes the person who went through the, the rape, who went through the, this terrifying experience, it's enough just a, you know, a gaze, a joke, a smile, and the person is, is getting crazy because the fear is there, the trauma is there. So the, the closed environment provides, a very, it's a very fruitful uh, territory for this such of, you know, iterations, small, invisible. You can't even uh, do anything about it. And I'm not speaking about the direct harassment, which is happening all the time. And, you know, there is this special thing, which is uh, not just femicide, but femini feminicide, you know? When the especially gay men are, uh, have a certain type of uh, conduction, I don't know, manners, don't know how to say it properly, it really uh, provides a, a real aggression against them. Because one thing is being a gay, and another thing is being like a feminine person, you know, like with this kind of things. And, and I was speaking to these people, and they really say that, you know, I am entering the, the lift, and they, they all are leaving lift. Or if, the, if they stay in the lift, they are starting to, like, pay uh, cheap jokes, you know, about let's go to our room. You know, and all these things for the person who are Actually, in this process, which is so painful, in all this environment, when you don't know, you live in this uncertainty, and you don't know what to do with this, and then you have that. And what, what, what shall you do? Like, go to the police to, to, to do what? To put the report about the, they are joking on me. But you live on this all the time. And for LGBT activists, uh, is something, there is a word which, LGBT activists will easily understand, which is bullying. You know, you say bullying and people know what you're talking about. Mm -hmm. But uh, unfortunately, uh, a lot of people who would never experiment this, which would be uh, obviously the white settled man, uh, who never was bullied. <laughs> so they don't know what you're talking about. And that's why I decided like, to write and you know, to, to highlight this issue because it's so invisible, it's so, it's so small. And then another big problem is the, the situation with translators, which is very uh, uh, rarely discussed because the, the bunch of problems is so big. Uh, so there, there, there were several situations when the translator was denied to translate uh, what the, the international protection applicant was saying, uh, the, the translator would stop and say, you are shame of my country. Oh my God. I will never translate that you are gay. There is no gays in my country. It was happening with very different countries, regardless, like with Islamic countries, Christian countries. You know, it is just a prejudices of the translators themselves. Uh, about the, the, the homosexuality, but it affects 
the person who is claiming for protection, which is like a huge problem, absolutely invisible, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Can I, can I just please? Uh, sorry, just throwing a, um, a quick response to the question you asked previously about the, the recommendations being implemented. I find it very shocking that they, the government comes out and says that, you know, so much of the recommendations from that report have been implemented when at this day and age we're still talking about deportations. If they're talking about reform and meaningful reform, we shouldn't still be looking at deportations and families being torn apart, being separated. Um, just even here in Galway, since we're here in Galway, there was a man who was separated from his family um, last year. It's, it's almost um, a year now that he's gone and his daughter will be celebrating his birthday soon. And still nothing is being done about that. No one is talking about that. No one is addressing people that are not being afforded the chance to even land and seek the protection, uh, which is a right mm -hmm. that, that, that we've talked about earlier. It, it's really shocking that, you know, we still have to be talking about those things. I mean, like you would say that from the moment you get um, that letter saying that you're going to be deported, it changes your life. You're living in terror because you don't know when that four o'clock or three o'clock knock is going to come at your door to come and uproot you from wherever you are with no notice um, and tell you that you need to be sent back to where you came from. This is a real possibility for anyone that's in the system, for all, mm. for all of us sitting here today. For me and my three children sitting here today, I could go back to Nokleshin tomorrow and find a letter in the morning that says, your application has been rejected, you're being sent to where you came from. I have children that came in when they were four years old. Where are you sending them back to? They've been here for five years, they've been in the education system, they've been living in the community. Perhaps a quick add-on to, to that in terms of what the people of Galway and, and beyond can do is, um, first of all, we do not campaign for the reform of direct provision. No one wants to be comfortable in the direct provision system. We want the system to be abolished because it is totally unfit uh, for purpose. Um, and we campaign also for no deportations. No one should have to be sent back to the very country that they fled uh, persecution or, or whatever they're fleeing from. So the best way to get involved, like Bulelang has uh, already said, is to annoy your politicians, um, ask them what they, their manifestos say about direct provision, but also get involved in the campaigns. Masi runs campaigns with a conference that's coming up in October, it's the 5th of October. I know many people have Twitter and Facebook. So if you go on those platforms and you look for the movement of asylum seekers in Ireland, um, follow that page, follow the Twitter, and you can retweet stuff there. We, have, we, we, we always tag um, the ministers on that. So that keeps, um, keeps them a bit busy. So if there's a lot of people, Doing that, I mean, we know people power is, you know, the best. We've seen a lot of changes happen over the last few years because of, of people power. So that's, that's the best way um, everyone can get involved. And just really briefly to say Queer Diaspora Ireland is also on Facebook. So follow their page and Galway Anti-Racism Network is locally, you know what I mean? Uh, you, can, you can see what's going on there with Garn and, and what you can do to help abolish direct provision and end the deportation regime. Thank you for listening to First Talk. For more First Talk talks, visit the talks section on Galway International Arts Festival's website on giaf.ie.